All right, please turn your Bibles to First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 12 and 13, as we continue to learn from God's Word. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 and 13. As Paul writes, But we ask you, brothers, that you may know those who labor among you and lead you in the Lord and admonish you, and that you regard them very highly in love because of their work, Live in peace with one another. God of peace, God of mercy, God of grace. Here we are, humbled before your throne, sitting at the feet of our Lord Jesus Christ to learn from your word so that we may grow in our Christ-likeness. So we ask you that peace of your spirit be among us as we study this word, that our focus is on the Lord Jesus Christ and everything that we learn so that we may be conformed into his image by the power of your spirit. So help us, help me, Lord. Be a mouthpiece for your word. Help our congregation. Help your church. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week we started looking at, uh, for those of you that weren't here, um, we started looking at the duty of the church. Uh, we have been studying First Thessalonians since my first time here back in September. And we uh, have worked our way through the first four chapters. And now we've been working through the fifth chapter. And we have gone to this place where we have been studying it so that we can use uh, or we can learn from the, the church in Thessalonica and in, a, in a local sense and using it as a model church to see what the Lord has taught them 2,000 years ago and to see what the Lord is teaching our, our local congregation today through His Word. So I don't want us to lose focus of that. And I've said this over and over again because I don't want us to lose focus of why we study the Scripture, why we're looking at the, Thessalon uh, the church in Thessalonica, the Thessalonian church. It's not so that I can give you some moral principles so that we can learn some principles that, we, that may be applicable in our, in our life individually, but also to learn from God and what He expects from the church, what He demands from the church, what He requests the church to do. And last week we started looking at Paul's exhortation to the Thessalonians in verse 11 
as he commands them to comfort one another and to build up one another. And this is a generic call to the church, right? You, you would agree with me that everybody in the church should be encouraging one another, comforting one another, so that we can grow into Christ-likeness. And that includes everybody. That's a broad brush that we're painting with. It's really generic. But as we begin in verse 12 today, and as we see for the next several verses, and for the next several weeks, what verse 12 begins is a series of specific requests made to the church in different areas of the church. There are different areas, there are specific areas in church life that God is giving us His command, His exhortation, His demands. So we'll be seeing what God demands in specific areas of church life. Starting in verse 12, and this morning we are going to look at what those demands are in verses 12 and 13. Where Paul makes these two demands, two requests that are in this text, in this passage of the local church and how we should relate with one another. But more specifically, how we should relate with those who serve in the church. So that there would be peace and harmony among the church. And honestly, your understanding of these two requests plays an important role in how you live in peace with one another. If we understand these two demands, these two requests, in a way that God intends for us to understand them, then the bond of peace of which we read in our scripture reading in Ephesians 4 would be lived out to the full extent and to the full measure of the grace of God. So I'm going to give you the, these two requests, these two demands that Paul makes from the text. And the first one is in, I mean, both of, uh, the first one is in verse 12. And we see that it is to know them to recognition is a first request. And the second request is esteem. And I pulled those out from verse 12, as Paul says, but we ask you, brothers, that you know. And then in verse 13, and that you regard. So those words to know can be also translated as to recognize. So that's where I got the recognition from. And, and that, that word for that you regard, that regard is to esteem. So that's where we get that word from that could be translated as esteem. So these two demands that God gives us in regard to those who serve in the local church is to recognize them and to esteem them. This is what Paul is describing. But before we look at each request and actually dig deep into that, I want to emphasize I want us to, 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 to see that this request is not optional. 
See, Paul starts off in verse 12. Look down with me to verse 12. And he says, but we ask you. I want to actually give you the context of that word. And I want us to, to really understand that this is not like we're asking you during our announcements. Hey, we're asking for people to volunteer starting this week. And don't take this as coercion for you to show up this coming week to, to help us. If you, if you are there, it's optional, right? You hear, we ask you, hey, we're asking you to come help us this week. It's optional. You can say, oh, I have, I have this to do and I have that to do. Maybe I don't have anything else to do, but I have other plans or whatever. It's optional. But this word that is in verse 12 emphasizes the genuine, real, active nature of what Paul is asking the church to do. But it's a demand. To put it in more of our context, I can ask you to... or. Imagine a teacher or a professor or a boss comes and asks you to accomplish a task or submit a paper or do homework. And it's a request that the teacher is presenting or a boss is asking. How would you react to that as opposed to, hey, do you want to help us this week? Do you want to serve in the music ministry? Or do you want to learn the fundamentals of the faith and get baptized? Clearly, you would treat one of those requests more seriously than the other. If your teacher says, hey, you have a paper due next Friday versus we have to finish remodeling this room next Friday, you would absolutely take one of them more seriously. Or if your boss comes in and says, hey, I need you to submit this presentation or have this presentation, work on this presentation, you would take it more seriously. So both are requests, both are questions, both are, but you would take one more seriously than the other. And I did not want us to take this command, this request, this asking that Paul is saying too lightly. This word for asking is translated with an emphasis of this genuine Real, active request it demands our response as a church. It is a request made with a view towards execution. It assumes that the demands must be met. It's not just an open-ended question that you can just optionally take or you don't have to. It's not a passive challenge. But I challenge you to do this. I'm like, ah, I don't feel like doing that challenge. 
It's not a, just a passive thing. It's an active request, demand that God is making to his church. So I want us to listen to this message. I want us to read this message, this passage. I want us to learn from this passage from that perspective. Secondly, what I want to emphasize is this is a request made to brothers. Look down with me again in verse 12. But we ask of you, who is the you? Who are you? You would ask. Who is the you that Paul is referring to? Look down. Brothers. I mean, I'm not just talking about the male gender. And Paul is not talking about the male gender. This is brethren, brothers, and sisters can be translated. Who would you call brother? Who, I, I, I look around this room and I see siblings in here. So if you were to introduce your sibling to somebody, somebody that just, that's this first time here today, you would say, this is my brother and this is my sister. Versus if you were to introduce me to that same person, you would say, this is Manny. Maybe you would say, he's our pastor, he's, he's our minister, he, whatever you want to. But you wouldn't necessarily, naturally say, he is my brother, or he's my, or, or you wouldn't say, he is my sister. You would never say that, by the way. <laughs> right? But why would you say that this person is your brother or this other person is your sister? It's because you were born in the same family. This is not lost on you. I'm, I know I'm kind of going so, this is so obvious. But I want us to consider what Paul writes to, who Paul writes to, who, who God is demanding this from is members of God's own family. So as I'm speaking to you, as Paul is speaking to the Thessalonians, as God is speaking through Paul, he's speaking to his own children. And the person that is in this church, in the local sense, that's sitting next to, next to you, in front of you, behind you, the person that you have conversations with, or you never really had any conversations besides, I know that person, that is your brother, and that is your sister. You are in the same family. God is our Father. We are all children of the same God through Christ Jesus and what He has done to adopt us into that family. So when I'm looking at you, I'm looking at fellow brothers and sisters. Not just random people that I see on Sundays. And with that being said, imagine the kind of affection that you would have to your brother or your sister. Imagine the, think of the, 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 the dearness that you hold. Generally speaking, not when they're being annoying, not when they're running into the room or hogging the bathroom or like they're tattletaling to your parents or when they're ignoring your calls and texts. And when not, not, not that, just generally. How do you feel towards your brother or sister? That affection 
among family members. I don't want us to glean over or, or pass over that affection that needs to be there when we hear this demand. So as we speak of this, notice that it's not the meeting of these demands that makes you a brother, by the way. It's not because you, you recognize and esteem those who serve in your midst and you hold them highly that, so that you can become a brother or a sister or become a fellow believer. I don't, wanna, I don't want us to have that wrong attitude or wrong understanding of that. We meet this demands because we are brothers and sisters. Just to give an illustration of something that just happened this morning. There were a set of siblings in our midst. And the older sibling took the younger sibling to go get something to eat right before service. Because there was a demand from a younger sibling to the older sibling that I'm hungry, I need to eat. Now, here's the question I want, I, I want to emphasize, right, as lightly as it is. Did that make that older sibling a sibling because that sibling took the younger sibling to McDonald's? Or did he take that, the younger sibling to McDonald's because that was his sister. So think of it from that perspective. You don't become a part of God's family because you made a demand. You meet the demand of the fellow believers. You meet the demands of God because you already are a part of that family. So with that being said, what then is the church? By the way, the church is not just what you do on Sundays. What then is the family of God? Requested or demanded to actively engage in in the present. We looked at it in our outline, which is first one is to know. To acknowledge, to recognize, to respect. Some, some translations even have it. I think the ESV has it. That you may respect. That you respect those who labor among you, right? That's what we're demanded to do. To know, to acknowledge, to respect. To actively recognize or give recognition to a certain group of people. In the setting of the local church. And I want to emphasize in the setting of the local church. Because here's what Paul says in verse 12. That you know those who labor among you. That is the emphasis of the local church. To 
took a class. Um, one, one, uh, we, we had an assignment in the seminary and one of the questions and we had to write about um, who has the most influence or write about a pastor or an expositor, a preacher or a teacher who has played a huge role in your, in your life? As a discussion question. Um, and it was, some people had like, people like John Piper, people like John MacArthur, you know, and people listed those, you know, YouTube, um, um, Charles Spurgeon, you know, some people even went all the way back to like, oh, Martin Luther or Jonathan Edward or John Owen. And you might, these names might not be ringing a bell, but these are like, if he was a Mount Rushmore of preaching and pastoral ministry, they'll be there, up there, right? Great reformers. And some, of, some people had said, oh, John Smith, who was my pastor at my local church. Uh, I'm just naming that up. I'm just making that up. Or, right? Some people said, my pastor at my local church is the person that I look to. And I bring this up because in our time, in our day, so easy to just tune, go on YouTube, and go to whatever channel you go to, Grace to You, or Desiring God, whatever you want to go to, uh, Ligonier Ministries, or whatever, right? You can go to those ministries and actually listen to great sermons, great expo exposition of God's Word. and see them as these celebrity pastors, right? We have them. Like, oh, I like this guy, and I like that guy, and, you know, Mike Todd, and if you're in that elk, right? You can, you can look at um, Stephen Furtick. Oh, yeah, I listened to him. He's really encouraging. I like him. Whatever, Joel Osteen, he comes on even in your local church. And I'm not recommending, I'm not, I'm not endorsing one way or another, by the way. I'm, if anything, I'm not endorsing the latter names that I'm, I'm naming. I'm, endor I'm, I'm, I'm endorsing the, the ones before it, if anything. Right? But what I'm trying to get to is it's easy to look at the celebrity pastors and the celebrity big following pastors and leaders and teachers and esteem them, recognize them as having authority. What Paul here is saying is that you may esteem those who labor among you. That is in a local sense. And it's easy to overlook those who labor among you. I talked about the, the teachers, but we can, we can look at People that serve in areas of worship ministry, music ministry. You know, 
I love the Gettys, you know, Maverick Music, or uh, Passion, um, whatever else is, is, is the most dominant one. I, uh, these people have really, really good voices and their, their music and, and the way that they play, they, there's a drum and everything else. I, I love their music ministry from there. And, and it's easy to recognize them as being, dare I even say, more blessed than our own worship team in the local church. Because they have such an amazing production. They got a whole symphony playing. And it's easy to be attracted to that. And I don't want us to lose track of what Paul is saying, that we may recognize who labor among you. That is in a local church. So who are these people, by the way? And I know I gave a couple of examples. Who are these people in the setting of the local church? And Paul gives us in, in verse 12, three marks of those that the, the church should recognize. There are three marks, three character traits that the church should recognize. What are these three marks? The first one is those who labor. You see that in verse 12. Those who exert their energy to the point of wearing out. That's what that word means. By the way, I, I want to stop here and acknowledge our worship team. You have no idea. Even up until service starting, the last song that they led us to sing, to sing, They labored with that. And I, I, I want to say, God bless you all. Thank you all for fighting through whatever you fought through. And it was amazing. I knew you can do it. Honestly. They exert their energy. These people exert their energy to the point of wearing out. That's what labor is. Hard work. They put forth the hard work. This is language to be used for athletes, farmers, right? And in, in the time of, in biblical times, farmers didn't have tractors. They sat on and drove around to till the ground, right? They actually physically got up and did things. I mean, it's still a physical, physical labor to be a farmer even in this day. But that labor is less tiresome. Thank God for technology. But and if you're an athlete, if you know anything about sports, it doesn't matter if you play golf or you're a, a marathon long-distance runner. It takes toll on your body. That's the language that is used here, to labor. Physical labor to the point of wearing out. But this labor, I want us to know that, I want you to know that this true labor is not for recognition. This labor doesn't happen so that you can be recognized in the church. 
when we talk about true labor, which, which, which is different than um, modern day athletics, especially, you labor so you can have the fans going for you, especially in a professional sense. You labor for recognition. But true biblical labor in the church is not for recognition, but it is a fruit of love. That's where it ties into how we see each other as family members who love one another, who have been even bought by love so that we can be a part of this loving family. It's a true labor of love. This is what we see Paul saying to the church in, in chapter 1, verse 3. Remember? Remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love. Labor that flows from love. He's remembering the Thessalonian church, how they were laboring as a result of their love. So when we say here, in, when Paul says in verse 12 that recognize those who labor, He's not saying they labor because they need your recognition. True labor is a fruit of love. True labor is also a result of saving grace. We labor out of love because we know the grace that is taken. And Paul tell, tells Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, that for it is for this we labor. And strive. Why do we labor and strive? Because we want everybody in the church to recognize how much work we put in. Because we want that recognition. We want to be famous and have uh, millions of followers on Instagram and TikTok and, and Twitter and YouTube. No, we labor and strive because we have fixed our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. That's what we labor and we strive. That's what true labor means. So those who are marked by this, who labor physically, week in and week out in the local church, day in and day out, should be recognized among us. And who are those people, by the way? And then I'll come back to this later. But it should be all of us. We should be laboring, all of us, for one another. The second marker that Paul describes in verse 12 or as it gives as a, uh, as a description of these people who are to be recognized in a, in a local church is those who lead. Those who care for, those who protect, those who assist, those who manage in a local sense. down in verse 12 that you may know those who labor among you and lead you in the Lord emphasis being here not on the leadership but in the Lord 
That is the context of the uh, the content of leadership in the church. This is Paul is referring to any kind of guidance, any kind of leadership, any kind of management, any kind of care that results in growth and in love and obedience to the glory of God. The implication there is that there are different other ways of leadership that is not in the Lord, that doesn't get you to be more like Jesus. I can lead, or you can find leadership, you can find guidance, you can find care that will lead you to be more self-centered, more emotion-centered, more money-centered, more whatever, fill in the blank. But in the church, these people who Paul says should be recognized are those who are guiding and loving and toiling and protecting and assisting and managing the church towards the Lord. And biblical leadership requires us to have a heart of servants. Listen to what the Lord himself says, how leadership ought to look like. In Luke chapter 22, verses 24 and 26, you can turn there or you can listen to me read it. And there arose also a dispute among them. This is the disciples with Jesus. It arose also a dispute among them as to which one of them was regarded to be the greatest. Who's the greatest? Between, uh, between Peter and John and Bartholomew, right? James. Even Judas was probably in the midst, in the midst of that. I'm the greatest, you know, I keep all the money, so I have all the power economically. And Peter's like, nah, I'm the one that actually walked on, on water. And John is like, nah, he loves me the most because he's always with me. And James is like, yeah, I mean, he's always calling me to be with him when he goes up to pray and stuff like that. You see, we are in the inner circle. And Andrew's like, no, I'm bringing everybody to him. He's got to love me more. I got to be the greatest because I'm turning more disciples. Uh, I'm, I'm converting more disciples. So there's a dispute between the apostles, between the disciples, as to who is the greatest. Listen to the Lord's response. Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles, Lorded over them, and those who have authority over them are called benefactors. In the world, yes, you're right. That's what happens. If I'm a leader, I gotta enforce myself and I gotta insert myself and assert myself and I gotta show you who's boss. I gotta make sure that I do the things so that you can recognize me as a leader and I can lord it over you so I can influence you i can manipulate the situation so that i can get you to do the things that i want i want you to do that's how it works out in the world but 
but not so with you. This is not my words. This is the Lord's of the Lord, the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not so with you if you're a disciple of Jesus Christ. Rather, the one who is the greatest among you must become like the youngest and the leader like the servant. And he modeled this, by the way, physically modeled it for them. While he was the teacher, the leader, the savior of the universe, he actually took off his robe and in its undergarments went to his knees and washed their feet. It's not just by words, but by also by deeds. He served. He came to serve. We looked at that last week, a couple weeks ago. Not to be served. So we have a model in Christ for the church. So leadership, in this sense, what Paul is saying back to the Thessalonians, uh, to the th church of Thessalonians, and what God is teaching us today is those who lead you are those who serve you, characterized by humility. Not to lord it over you. That's how you know who these people are. That's how you... That, that's the character trait that causes you to recognize them. This is why God, actually turn with me to um, our scripture reading in Ephesians 4. I want us to look, to look into that a little bit more. Ephesians 4. Let's pick it up in verse 7. It gives us a better picture of what, how God has given this grace through Christ to us. But to each one of us, grace was given. To whom was grace given? Only to those who are behind the pulpit. Only to those that can sing. Only to those that can have this powerful prayer. Only to those that can write great blogs and articles about God. Paul says, to each one of us, grace was given. According to the measure of Christ's gift. Not according to how ready you are to follow Jesus. Not according to how good of a person you are. Not according to how much Bible you read during the week. Not according to how many times you pray. Not according to how how good you think you are in, in terms of singing. This gift is given to us, this grace is given to us according to the measure of Christ's gift. To each one of you that are sitting in, in front of me, God has given you grace according to Christ's gift. And how much is Christ's gift? Is it limited? So therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captive, a host of captives. And he goes back to a language of warfare. And he gave gifts to men. This is talking about when a king goes out to war and he defeats the opposite king. Uh, and and he, he ransacks basically all, and he, all of the belongings of that, 
that, that, that kingdom. And he brings and he takes the spoils and he shares it with his household. So he gives gifts to men. Who is this? It is Jesus Christ himself, he who ascended. What does it mean except that he also descended into the lower parts of earth? It's about coming to, some people say this is about Jesus coming to earth uh, from, from heaven and then coming, going back to, to heaven. Some people say this is after his death. When he goes down to, to, to hell and actually defeats death and he raises back up. This is, you can take it both ways. Um, one, so he who descended himself is also who ascended far above all the heavens, so that he might fill all things. Verse 11, and he himself, the king himself, gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers. So Jesus himself, by his grace, gives these offices. For what purpose? For the equipping of the saints for work of service. It's not to be lord over. Leadership in the church is so that saints are equipped so they can be servants. So the, the leader, the servant, serves so that we can create more people who serve. That's the implication of this text. So those, who rec the, those that demand recognition are those who lead back in 1 Thessalonians. From that attitude, from that service in the Lord. And lastly, the last marker that Paul gives us is it's those who admonish. When's the last time you used the word admonish in your day-to-day um, -day conversation? Probably never. So I, I say that not so. It just, it just doesn't make sense to us today. What does the word admonish mean? The word admonish means to speak to one's heart. I'm sure... You have used that, something similar to that in your conversation. Or you've said something like that, that really spoke to my heart. Right? That's what admonish means. That's just a $5 word for speaking to one's heart, to impart understanding. I'm sure you've heard that one, both, both those words, imparting and understanding. All right, it's the, it's, it has a sense of reminding, correcting, warning others. And those who the church should recognize display this character of reminding or correcting and warning, speaking to one's heart to impart understanding and wisdom. See, those who admonish appeal to the heart to bring about transformation. By the way, they're not just trying to give you head knowledge. 
They're not just trying to appeal to your intellect so you can be more smarter. And that's not even the right grammar, right? Smarter or more smart, which the correct grammar is smarter, right? They're not trying to appeal to your intellect. They're trying, when, when you admonish someone, the appeal is made directly to your will and to your affection and to your disposition. So that you may be transformed. Here's a question I want to pose to you. Can any man change your mind and your heart and your disposition and your will? Really? From the bottom of your heart? The answer is no. I see heads shaking like this, which means no. I... Because that's the truth. This is the work of the Holy Spirit himself. So the admonishment even doesn't come in the true sense in the church. It's not me screaming from the top of my lung. It's not the words from, from, from the words uh, from the singing that you do. It's, not, it's the Spirit Himself that admonishes through us. And if we remember, going back to, turn with me to um, Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and look at verse 5. Remember what Paul says, same book, so I want us to, to look at it. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, to appeal to your intellect, but it came also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full assurance. That's admonishment. An admonishment also has that sense of correction and warning, right? Look down in verse 14, which we will look at next week if the Lord wills. We urge you, you brothers, what does it say? Admonish the unruly. What do you do with an unruly person? You correct them. You discipline them. There's a sense of encouragement included in that, the faint-hearted and helping the weak and be patient with everyone, we'll, which we'll look at next week. So those who sincerely, by the power of the Spirit, admonish you, appeal to your heart to bring about a transformation in your life. without trying to provoke you. Right, when Paul talks to fathers in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, and really this goes to parents, it can be translated into parents, he says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. It's the same word used here for admonishment here in the discipline and instruction. So true discipline and instruction, true admonishment, doesn't provoke you to anger. And remember how Paul describes his ministry to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 12. You can turn there so we can look at it together. 
I'm sorry, verse 11. Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and bear witness to each one of you. You notice that? Exhorting, encouraging, bearing witness. All the different facets of admonishment to each one of you as a father would his own children. So Paul's ministry is to the Thessalonians and not just Paul's, but he says we. So everybody that served with Paul in the local church of Thessalonica had this attitude of a father towards them. He talks about how he was gentle as a mother before that, obviously, in the context. So it's about the tender care and also the admonishment, right? So in the church, this is how we ought to say. And as a father, we're not trying to provoke you. Admonishment doesn't provoke you. But it disciplines you and it gives you instruction of the Lord. That's what marks true admonishment in the church. And those people that, as we've seen, these three character traits, these three marks, those who labor, those who lead, and those who admonish in the way that we've talked about need to be recognized in the church. And if this is how you know who you respect or you acknowledge in the church, if these are the ones who, are, who you are to give recognition, who are they? Who are these people in the church? And I talked about this earlier. It should be generally everyone. Look at the person next to you and look at the person in front of you. Look at the person behind you. And then when you look around, that's who you should have that in a general sense. Because the person in front of you should be admonishing you. The person behind you should be leading you to Christ. And the person in front of you should be laboring with you and for you. Because you are part of the same family. And this is not lost on us. We all have families. We all have brothers and sisters. And if you're an only child, you, you still have, you know the family dynamic. And you labor for the sake of your brother and sister. And you correct them, and you remind them, you warn them of things. And you teach them things, you admonish them. You do this. It's not lost on you. And you lead them, and you care for them, and you protect them, and, and you instruct them, and you manage what they do, and what, or that they do the same thing, vice versa, too. So in a general sense, who are these people that you should recognize in the church in a local sense? should be everyone. Now a case could be made that this is actually more specific to those who actually engage in service in a church, which should be everybody should be serving a church too. Comes from the second demand we are called to do. 
And that second demand is obviously to esteem them. In verse 13, look down with me to verse 13. And that you regard them, the regard that you have for them very highly. That's the second demand. What does it mean to, to regard someone? What does it mean to esteem? And some translations have it. It's to speak, it, that speaks of the degree of honor that you give to people. How do you consider those people that who serve you? Do you consider them highly or or is it something as if somebody serves you, you're kind of like, oh, well, that's whatever. You go into a restaurant. Who has more honor in your eyes? The owner of the restaurant or the waiter? Forget the waiter, the busboy. Who do you give more honor to? If we're honest, it's probably the owner of the restaurant. We esteem them highly because they own the whole thing, man. Like, they probably got so much money. A busboy just making $10 an hour. Why? We don't necessarily esteem them. All he's good for is just taking up leftovers and collecting dirty dishes and, and, and wiping down tables. But the owner, though, I mean, he got the Maserati parked in the front because he owns this joint. And he walks in the room, everybody's like, oh, the owner's here. The busboy, they're invisible. I can't even... Can you think of the last time you, you noticed the bus the busboy? Probably never. But they toil and they serve. And they're integral. So I'm just giving you an imperfect illustration of what that means to esteem someone to recognize them to consider them as with honor Paul says those who serve those who toil those who lead and it's easier to when somebody's in a leadership position it's easier to honor them but i think Paul is really intentional in why he says Hey, those who labor, who labors, not, not just the leadership position in the church labors. People that you don't notice labor. The people that you see after service. sweeping and mopping and cleaning the bathrooms and everything else of this facility, they are laboring. You may not stop and, and you know, say, hi, how are you? As you would say if you were to walk and see one of the elders or one of the, one of the pastors of this church. 
And that shouldn't be. They are laboring just as much as the pastor labors for hours to, 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 to study and, and to prepare a sermon and to, to whatever else to, to care for, to protect all of those things. The labor is the same. Those who serve in the music ministry in our context, they labor each week. What are we going to sing this week that is coherent and consistent with this? And how well is the melody? And I can't, I can't even imagine. I just make joyful noise. I can't sing, right? But they labor to pick the songs. And you see them, and they're kind of like, they stand up here and they sing, and everybody else is kind of just looking at them. They labor to lead you into worship together, by the way. So just as you would show honor to the person behind the pulpit by paying attention and listening to what he's saying, they will show that the way that you show honor to those who serve in that perspective is when you sing with them and you're saying, yes, I agree with you with the song selection that you've made and showing me Christ. And by singing with you, I'm building everybody. Uh, we're building together and singing together, right? Now, whoever reads a scripture reading, whoever does the work uh, that, that we have in front of us, of remodeling, we're agreeing with one another. We're showing honor to one another. So it's that degree of honor and consideration that we are demanded to have. And notice the attitude or the disposition and the manner in which we show honor is not by coercion. It's not just rule following or it's not a means to an end. You know, if I do X, Y, and Z, I'm going to get there. So he's just going to leave me alone. If I, if I just sing, he's just not going to preach about sing with us during congregational worship. So I'm just going to do that. No, notice how he says, verse 13, regard them very highly in love. That's the heart attitude that causes you to regard them highly. It's not manipulation. It's love to Christ and love to one another who gives them to the church, understanding that it is love to Him and obedience to Him. That's why they do what they do. And therefore, because you understand that same love, you would esteem them highly. Because you know they work because of love. So when you see their work, it's not just because they have to. It's because they love the Lord. It's because they love you. And if you're a brother and a sister, if your brother loves you, what is the natural response to that? Oh, they love me because, you know, they have to. No, they love, I have to love them because I have to. That's the wrong attitude. You would never think of that. Or if you say, I love them because they took me to McDonald's earlier this morning. 
I love them because they gave me a pair of shoes for my birthday. I love them because they do this and that for me. Then that love becomes transactional. And what happens when that transaction ends? What happens when you're hungry and they're like, I can't take you to McDonald's today. You're just going to have to suck it up. Do you stop loving them? But the love is beyond what we can transact with. They work because of love. And as you see their work, you are reminded of the reason why. As you see them, as, as you see those people in the back working on in the media or in the front here, uh, or you see me or you see those people cleaning, you see every acti activity and everybody engaged in the work of the Lord, you know it's because of love. And in love, you honor them. In love, you esteem them highly. And I said, this is supposed to be for everyone in, ge in a general sense. But the Bible shows us in 1 Timothy chapter 5 and 17. This is actually something that Paul discusses with Timothy. The elders who lead well are to be considered, of worthy, um, are to be considered worthy of double honor. Especially those who labor at preaching and the word and teaching. So there are distinct people that are worthy of double honor because they labor. And he emphasizes, this is a pastoral letter, so he emphasizes the word and teaching and preaching. If you go to Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 7, he tells us, remember your leaders. This is what it looks like, by the way. This is what honoring and esteeming highly of those who are marked with those three character traits looks like remember your leaders who spoke the word of god to you consider the result of their conduct and imitate their faith that's what it practically looks like when you honor somebody the best way to honor somebody is to imitate them how do we honor christ by being more like christ we don't just honor christ by saying oh yeah we know about you yeah not by word only remember not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of my Father in heaven. Only those who do the will of my Father in heaven will enter the kingdom of God. This is what Jesus tells his disciples in Matthew chapter 7. Why do you call me Lord, he says, and do not do what I say? He says, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me, their actions. So the way that you show honor is by imitating their conduct, imitating their faith. According to Hebrews 13 and 7, according to Hebrews 13 and 17, look at what, what it says. Obey your leaders and submit to them. Obedience and submission being one of the practical ways of showing honor. Not blindly. But in as much as they lead you to Christ, and as much as they, the result of their conduct and their faith is in alignment with Christ-likeness, 
for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account so they so that they will do this with joy and not with groaning for this would be unprofitable to you it even has a profit to you to walk in obedience and submission in a local church to those who lead you for one they're accountable for you before the lord two they keep watch over your souls And there's an attitude by which they can do it if they do it with joy. If you are the source of joy for those who lead you and, and guide you and to admonish you, who labor, if that's the case, then they're not doing it with groaning like complainants. Man, I guess I, I have to go and prepare this so I can, I can preach to these people. They don't even really listen to me. They want to hide and whatever. Uh, I guess I have to clean up. Not from that attitude. Be a source of joy to those who serve you. That's how you practically do it and show that esteem, not a source of groaning. Oh, wow. Where has the time gone? So let's quickly finish by reminding one another why we are studying this church. Of the Thessalonians. Why are we studying the church in Thessalonica as a local church? Because we want to use it as a model. And as a model, let us also recognize and esteem, as Paul demands this from this church in Thessalonica, God is demanding this from us to recognize and esteem one another, those who serve, those who labor, those who lead, those who admonish and love. As we all labor to comfort one another and to build up one another. And notice the result. End of verse 13. Live in peace with one another. That's an odd thing, right? How do you go from specific group of people to everyone general again? That is the natural, logical consequence of a church who is obedient to this demand, who responds and who executes these requests that Paul makes to live in peace and harmony with one another. Let's pray. Father, thank you for teaching us from your word. Thank you for leading us Thank you for guiding us through the word. Thank you for opening our eyes to the wondrous truth of your word. As we are confronted by the truth 
we acknowledge that we have not known or recognized or given recognition to those who labor among us, to those who lead us in Christ and admonish us in our local church the way we are supposed to. And yet you are still merciful to us. We have not esteemed them. We have not respected them. We have not regarded them as a gift from you. And we have not regarded ourselves as a gift to them. So that we may live in peace with one another. So as we confess our shortcomings and our sins, we are comforted by your mercy and your grace through Christ Jesus. That allows us to be forgiven and justified before you. And yet we confess so that we are reconciled and right standing relationally to you and to one another. And not only confessing, but we are asking, Lord, that you would give us the grace, you would give us the wisdom to serve one another, to labor for the sake of one another, to lead one another to in Christ, to admonish one another, so that we may grow into the full measure of Christ and to keep the bond of peace. By your Spirit, Lord, would you help this church to accomplish this? Would you continue to mold us and shape us and transform us into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.